Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 149, Sex, Childbirth and Children. And indeed welcome to the third and last for a while in the mini-series that forms my feeble attempt to broaden the coverage, range and appeal of the King's Battles and Politics podcast. And today we have three topics, sex and the medieval physiology, childbirth and something about how to bring up children in the medieval world. I have to note that it's faintly ironic, is it not, that the episodes I drew from a book on medieval women should be the only two I have produced which have the explicit tag on them in iTunes. I seriously do not know how to interpret that. But can I confess that I can feel the PC ice cracking beneath me as I speak? So, as I say, I thought I'd do a segment on sex, and let's start there. It'll be short. Madness, I hear you say. Utter madness. For those of you with a nervous disposition who don't like seeing podcasters get themselves into trouble, turn away now. OK, are you so turned? For those of you still with me, let's start with some basics, with Galen, Aristotle and Hippocrates, who between them defined the basic medical understanding of the medieval world. And of course, we should also start with the church and its attitude towards sex. And given that the first shall be last, let's start with the church. The common assumption about the medieval church is that they thought sex was just a bad idea and to be avoided. And indeed, in the welter of faintly absurd rules about when you could and couldn't have sex, which I think we've outed before, that doesn't seem like a bad assumption. But actually, it is a little more complicated than that. Because God told Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply, and hate it or loathe it, that meant sex. Sex was clearly part of God's plan. Now there might be a lucky few who could withdraw from the world and avoid it in a monastery and such like. But if everyone did that, humanity would be guilty of disobeying God. And that would never do. So the problem really now was not that sex existed... The problem was that people appeared to enjoy it as well. And that would never do. The problem was lust, because lust led to illicit sex. Wrong sex, bad sex. Sex just for fun rather than sex for the greater good of humanity. 
That was where the serpent had entered the garden, as it were. That was the original sin. Without that darned apple, procreation would have simply been carried out like any other bodily function, like cutting your fingernails. As far as the church was concerned, therefore, the answer to all of this was mariage. It's a famous truth that in days medieval women were, in law at least, in the control of their men through their lives, and that a woman could not deny sex to her husband. But as this passage shows, actually that did cut both ways. Let the husband render to his wife what is her due, and likewise the wife to her husband. A wife has no authority over her body but her husband. Likewise, the husband has no authority over his body but his wife. You must not refuse each other, except perhaps by consent for a time that you may give yourselves to prayer and return together again, lest Satan tempt you because you lack self-control. Now this law gave rise to some genuinely painful problems raised by the doctors. What was the woman to do, for example, who had been told that having a child would kill her? According to the teaching of the church, in the end, she could not deny her husband. But in general, in cases like this, the church was wise enough to give the priority to the well-being and safety of the woman, as it did if there was that hideous choice that had to be made in childbirth between the safety of the mother and of the unborn child. And there is a big difference between the writing and formal doctrine of the church and day-to-day decisions that people made. So while there's plenty of evidence of priests and confessors worrying about the amount of birth control going on, the church had enough flexibility to recognise that a solution was sometimes needed. And indeed, on occasions, they were even prepared to make recommendations. So, gentlemen, a plaster of hemlock on the testicles was recommended as a form of birth control. And that advice came from the Pope himself in the form of John XXI. I'm tempted to say... Don't try this at home, but on the other hand, you're all grown-ups, so who am I? There wasn't it hemlock that did for old Socrates Johnson. Anyway, let me know if you decide to give it a go. Side by side with this Christian tradition was the older medical tradition, explaining the male and female physiology in the form of Aristotle, Hippocrates and Galen. Aristotle is probably quickest dealt with, And really just to note that it's Aristotle's medical view that tended to encourage the most misogynistic interpretations. As far as Aristotle was concerned, a woman was a kind of defective male. The parts that were outside a male were inside a female. As far as contraception was concerned, the male produced the seed and the woman provided no more than, quote, matter for the semen to work on. It gets more complicated when we get to Galen. Elias Galenus was a Greek member of the Roman Empire from Pergamon in the 2nd century AD. Galen's teaching was that both men and women produce seed, which all sounds jolly egalitarian, but it had a kicker. On the one hand, it meant that a woman had to ejaculate in order for there to be conception, and so she had to enjoy sex. So, all good so far. But equally, that meant that raping a woman would be without consequence, i.e. since it was clear she would not ejaculate and therefore conceive. And that led to a very nasty logic. If a woman who claimed to have been raped did conceive, 
she was implicated as being complicit and consenting, and it could not therefore have been rape. Such logic tied medieval morals into knots. So that's made me suitably uncomfortable, but it is with deep regret that I need to expand a bit more. So another conclusion from Elias Galenus's teaching was that male seed was precious. It should be neither unreasonably stored up nor casually wasted. But female seed, now then, female seed, now then, female seed was a very different proposition. Female seed was potentially lethal. If a woman built up her seed too much, it could be the death of her, and something had to be done about it. If there was no sex in marriage to be had, then action had to be taken. Travel, exercise, medicine, or something more direct. I speak, of course, of masturbation. Why, I hear you say, did I have to mention such a topic? But all of this is open to the most misogynistic of interpretations, of course like the attitude towards menstruation we discussed in a previous episode, as to being something unclean. Pliny, the Roman philosopher, really went to town on this topic. Menstrual blood turned wine sour, hives of bees died, dogs got rabies, and more. And so sex during menstruation was an absolute no-no. The consequences were dire. According to Pliny, the child so conceived could have leprosy, or worse, red hair. I have to say I did laugh at that. I mean, what is it about the ginge thing? To all of you redheads out there, I raise a formal protest against Pliny and the world on your behalf. The whole medical thing was awash with the potential for misogynistic interpretation. Hippocrates, he of the Hippocratic Oath from ancient Greece, Hippocrates probably sought merely to explain the world when he described it and everything in it as having four elements. Fire, earth, air and water, which gave rise to a few types of physical attribute, heat, cold, dryness and moisture. And then there were the humours, which must be kept in balance. Blood, collar, black bile and phlegm. So Hippocrates concluded that men were basically hotter and drier than women. Fair in author. But in the hands of the medieval male academic, things got nasty. Male heat and dryness accounted for both physiological and moral superiority. Women talked too much because their tongues were all wet and slippery. Women were sexually greedy and incontinent because their cold uteruses were ever in need of being warmed up by hot semen. At which point I have to confess to being more than a little uncomfortable. How's it going out there with you? And I think that's really enough, and as much as I can manage without self-combusting. But clearly, to the modern mind and knowledge, it's all a bit of a mess. But there are two thoughts to end on. Firstly, Lord knows what daily practical impact all of this had on your average man and woman. It's perfectly possible that away from all this theoretical debate, men and women just got on with it. And secondly, while there were no doubt many misogynistic doctors and academics working through their little theories, there were equally no doubt a vast majority in the relatively new medical profession simply trying to use their learning of this deeply imperfect medical worldview to alleviate suffering and improve the lives of their patients. But it probably won't surprise you to learn that this extract from a medical text of the time was written by a woman. And if any man chances to read it, I pray him and charge him on Our Lady's behalf that he read it not in any way that would show contempt 
or be slanderous of any woman, nor for any reason accept their healing and help, dreading the vengeance that might fall to him as it has done to others who have revealed women's secrets in a slanderous fashion, and certainly understanding that those women who are now alive have troubles no different from those once endured by women who are now saints in heaven. So, now that we have, to some extent at least, dealt with conception, let's talk about childbirth. The whole philosophy around conception and giving birth was a confusing mishmash of myth, old wives' tales, ancient wisdom, religion, hogwash masquerading as science, and earnest, thoughtful attempts to explain the inexplicable. In a field near a small village in Suffolk was kept a white bull. The monks from Bury St Edmunds would regularly come to the village and lead a procession. In that procession there might be a woman that wanted to conceive. Let's call her Alice. Alice would walk in the procession alongside the bull, stroking its flanks. It's a wonderful combination of all sorts of things. The shared importance of fertility to the whole community. The public nature of it all. The mixture of Christian and very pagan-sounding religion. It's a constant reminder that understanding ideas and concepts about the medieval world is very, very different to feeling and understanding what it was really like to live there. And as an aside, although clearly much less driven by an academic search for truth and structure, the superstition in the Anglo-Saxon sources like Bald's Leech Book are rather more attractive than the superstition in the Aristotelian stuff. So, our Alice down there in medieval Suffolk, hoping desperately for a child, would be surrounded by all the old law, just as we are now, really. The woman who walks slowly and has hollow eyes, for example, will have a son. If she walks with her weight on her toes, she'll have a girl. And when Alice and hopefully her husband's wishes were finally granted, she would, of course, have had access to all this kind of ready advice but she and the midwife might well have access to a variety of more modern academic tracts, and they could consult the doctor or the priest. It's very tempting to start any discussion about childbirth with all the dire statistics, and I'm going to give in to that temptation, but mainly so that we can get through them. Not that we have any really reliable hard stats, but the best guesses are that one in 40 women child in childbirth that 20% of children died before the age of five, and that one in ten pregnancies ended in the death of the mother. Not sure if all those stats work together, but the long and short is that it would be surprising if our Alice wasn't worried and keen to get the best advice and best protection. To balance that, contemporary medical books like The Sickness of Women have plenty of cheery advice. If everything goes well and it's a natural birth, the book beams, 20 pangs or so will see the job done. Childbirth was an almost exclusively women's world. There was none of that modern stuff about fathers being present at the birth. The only possible male candidates were priest and doctor. So it was Alice, the midwife, and the female relatives and friends. Being Alice's midwife would surely have been a terrifying task not just because of those nasty stats, but because of the consequences for baby if things went wrong. If there was a choice, the midwife's responsibility was clear. It is the mother that must be saved. But the unbaptized baby who dies has no destiny other than limbo. It cannot go to heaven. 
and it would be buried outside the churchyard in unconsecrated ground, things that were horrifying to their medieval mind. And so the midwife has some truly horrifying decisions to make. If there was any chance of a stillbirth, any part of the body protruding should be baptised immediately, and in an emergency the job could be done by anybody, including the midwife. So it was her job to make sure everything was ready for that eventuality. Even worse was the decision whether or not to give a caesarean. At this age, the procedure always ended in the death of the mother, so it was an agonising decision to make. And although there were surgeons who would do this, usually it was the midwife's decision, and the midwife then carried it out. For that reason, a midwife would do her very best not to work alone and carry the blame of a wrong decision. So as Alice went into labour, there would have been more than one midwife, and there would have been friends and relatives, there would be hustle and bustle and conversation and support. And there would have been prayers to St Margaret, the patron saint of childbirth, and to the ubiquitous Mary. And there would have been local charms and relics to call into play. So if Alice had been at Revo, for example, she might have asked the monks from the abbey to bring the girdle of St Eilred. Or if she had been in Burton, she might have called for the staff of St Mudwina. So let's assume that everything goes well for Alice and a beautiful bouncing baby is delivered without leprosy or, God forbid, red hair. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Baptisms would then normally take place within eight days of the birth, but if there was any worry, it would be hurried up. The newly born were terribly vulnerable. Just as the actual birth was something of a community event, so too, and more so, was the baptism. The godparents would hopefully be present. The concept of the godparent, just to digress, was almost as old as the church itself, at least seeming to derive from the second century. The idea behind godparenting was one of sponsorship, the idea of standing as surety for the child, and to serve as proxies for the parents, if they turned out to be particularly godless. Traditions have, of course, changed. I am myself a godparent, and a particularly feeble godparent I am. And indeed, my role appears to be to send a present twice a year, rather than offer any kind of spiritual guidance. If I did offer spiritual guidance, I suspect my godchildren would call the police. That would be just a couple of moments after their parents called the police. However, originally godparents were associated with pagans newly joining the church and someone to vouch for them and keep them on the straight and narrow. It used to be expected that the parents would do this vouching as well, but that changed as well. It used to be that one person would do the deed. Right through to 14th century Spain, where I'm told 20 people might be godparents, which would be a darn good annual haul of Christmas presents. But in England, in 1240... At Worcester, Walter de Cantaloupe presided over a synod, no doubt fondling a grapefruit. And at that synod, it was decided that in England there would be three godparents, two of the same sex as the child and one of the opposite sex. At the same synod, incidentally, it was also decided that games of religious mockery should be banned 
and that clergy should be banned from playing chess, which makes total sense. Most of the chess players I know, frankly, went bad, listeners, their souls warped by the gay abandon of the chess experience. While I realise I am now in a digression within a digression, you might also like to know that Muslims also banned chess, along more recently with the Taliban. By golly, the things you learn. The question is why, and I know not. Please send answers on a postcard to the History of England. Wild speculation and daft suggestions accepted. Anyway, where are we now? Chess, check, godparents, check, back to baptism. Which was a significantly more elaborate thing than the gentle sprinkle you get now, or at least which you get in the Anglican tradition. There were three immersions, one on each side and one face down, which sounds alarming. Alice, as it happens, would in all likelihood not be there. It was expected that the mother would have a lying in after the birth for a few days. Well-off households would draft in another servant to help out while the new mother chilled and recovered her war. So mothers would usually re-emerge about a month later into the public eye for a ceremony called churching, a kind of purification ceremony which again would be a community event. The new mother would offer candles to the Virgin in celebration of the shared connection of motherhood. It was an event, a chance for a celebration. People wore their Sunday best. There was widespread backslapping and a bit of a knees-up afterwards was de rigueur. The exception to the celebration might be for the very poor, the very poor indeed, for whom the birth of a child might be a bit of an economic disaster. There is a theory that, given the precariousness of life in the Middle Ages, that the love of parents for children is a modern construct. In all likelihood, this is hogwash. There's reams of evidence that it's not so. It seems that infanticide was vanishingly rare. Where it did occur in continental Europe, it was for reasons of shame around babies born outside marriage, but in England there seems to have been relatively less shame around illegitimacy, and therefore even less pressure towards infanticide. And although we have a general picture of primogeniture being the main form of land inheritance, actually the norm of inheritance was for all children to be looked after in some way, whether they were male or female. Which brings us, as night follows day, to the object of all this birthing activity, the children themselves, and attitudes to the rearing of children. First of all, let's be clear about what ages we're talking about. The 7th century scholar Isadora of Seville had a nicely definitive schema that had infancy up to the age of 7, childhood until 14, and adolescence until 28. There's little doubt that in fact adulthood started in practice a good deal earlier than 28, but infancy and childhood probably held pretty good. Below 7 years in particular, children were reckoned to have no moral sense. The care of babies would in some ways vary according to your station in life, although there were no doubt many commonalities. So in England, for example, the tradition was to swaddle babies. But in feeding the newborn, if you are of noble or affluent birth, you would in all likelihood find yourself a wet nurse rather than breastfeeding yourself. If you are a peasant, you'd be unlikely to be able to afford such a luxury, and you'd be much more likely to be doing the wet nursing. Though there are examples of mothers refusing to take on the role. So, for example, in 1366, a certain Elena was asked by her former mistress to take on the role of a wet nurse, and she refused, saying that she did not want to jeopardise the health of her own baby. When her mistress had another child, though, second time round, she accepted. It's interesting just how much of a role the church felt it had in these things. 
The church's opinion was pretty forthright that a woman should in fact feed her own child, that babies should not be taken into bed until they were three years old for fear of squishing them, that cots must be secure, babies not left unattended or left near boiling water, and indeed to make sure they're protected from livestock. There's more than one story about children dying under the feet of poorly controlled pigs. So every week women could expect to hear their priest laying down the law about all manner of stuff, not just about the resurrection and the life everlasting. Once out of childbirth, the expectation was that up to the age of seven children would stay with their mothers, and the fair assumption would be that they would learn at the feet of their fathers and mothers. Spinning would be an important skill for every girl, irrespective of their estate in life. While they were around, it's worth noting, probably to nobody's surprise, the daily discipline was that of the spare the rod and spoil the child variety. So this one educational tract is called How the Good Wife Taught Her Daughter, and its opinion is pretty straightforward. If your children are rebellious and do not bow, or if any of them misbehave, do not curse them. But take a smart rod and beat them in a row until they cry mercy and be aware of their guilt. Essentially, children need a firm hand to make sure they have a proper respect for the law and their parents. After the age of seven, noble children would often be sent away. Often, especially in younger years, they would go to other knightly households. This was usually the case for boys, but it appears to have been common enough for girls to boot. Children might be sent as foster children or to work as servants to learn a trade or good manners as I was sent to my grandmother's in a terrifying fortnight that lives with me to this day. In medieval times, the maternal uncle would be a very common choice of household to be sent to. For peasantry in town, learning would be usually conducted at the father or mother's knee. Boys and girls would work in the fields, craftsmen's sons would learn the trade and how to keep account, that sort of thing. The grander children might also be sent away to school, or a monastery or a convent, because schools were becoming more numerous, but were very definitely still for the minority, and usually attached to a cathedral or monastery. At ten pence a week per pupil, the cost would be way too high for your average man on the agricultural omnibus. The base assumption is that girls were seen as less important than boys and would therefore get the thin end of the wedge, and there appears to be truth and exaggeration in this. So it's very likely that in practice opportunities after seven were more limited for girls than they were for boys, but formally the same or similar opportunities were available. So in 1268 we find Catherine Le Sergienne working alongside her surgeon father and brother. The 1406 Statute of Artificers said, Every man or woman of what estate or condition that he shall be shall be free to set their son or daughter to take learning at any manner of school that pleaseth them within the realm. There is therefore something of a debate about women's literacy, again with the assumption that women were less likely to be able to read than men. Now, as I think we've noted before, literacy levels in later medieval England and indeed Europe are clearly rising. There'd be little point in Wycliffe and the church getting all aerated about a Bible in the vernacular if there was no danger of anybody reading it. It's no longer just clerics that can read, and it could be that male literacy was about 5% in rural areas and 20% in towns. So much for blokes, but what about the women? 
and the truth is that we don't know. There are enough examples of women reading, and it being accepted as perfectly natural that they should do so. The story of Judith reading to the young Alfred, for example. Queen Margaret does the same. There are images of the Virgin with a book. During the 15th century clampdown on Lollardy, a ruling lays down that women are to teach other women and children only in a domestic setting. Now that suggests that women are doing the said teaching and has to be legislated against. There are authors such as Christine of Pizan, though conversely there are authors such as Marjorie Kemp who had to rely on a cleric to write her words down. And then in 2009, a Canadian researcher turned up a manuscript which looks pretty much like the early precursor of a kind of women's magazine. So there are tantalising glimpses but no firm conclusion. The most definitive you can get to really is that there would be literate women, that the number was rising and that the rate would be somewhere behind that of men, which is a pretty feeble kind of statement. And so to the weekly word, which this week I thought could be child, since the little blighters have come up in today's episode. I will start by confessing that I conform very closely to the joke my French pen friend's mother told me when I visited there many, many years ago. It went like this. Question. What do you call someone who speaks many languages? Answer. A polyglot. Question. What do you call someone who speaks two languages? Answer. A biglot. Question. What do you call someone who speaks one language? And the answer, an Englishman. Nonetheless, in the days of my youth when I was told what it means to be a man, I also did one year of German, in addition to my thrashing about, otherwise known as trying to learn French. I didn't learn very much, listeners. I can tell a German that the sun shines out of a cloudless sky. Not a useful phrase here in Old Blighty. Not that useful in Germany either. And I can say something about Julia getting up in the morning and going into the bathroom. However, I did learn that Kint is the word for child in German, and I gaily assumed that Kint and child must be related. Not so, I have to tell you. In fact, child has no association with Germanic at all. Its root is rather more obscure and open to debate. Some think it goes back to Old Scandinavian, or an Old Icelandic word for rounded tip or bald head. Or it could go back to the Old Gothic word for womb or pregnant woman. It might even go back to Sanskrit for belly. But the main thing that attracted me to talking about child is its plural form, children. Though I have that spooky feeling I've told you about all of this before, but no matter. There's something rather pleasant, if mysterious, about the fact that there are just a few words that have an N or an E-N as a plural, like ox and oxen, for example. Because, of course, it's now pretty much par for the course that the plural will be an S or an E-S. The change came about in the transition to Middle English, where an enormous change occurred. Up to this point, Anglo-Saxon and Old English had been a heavily inflected language where the way you spoke a word had as great an impact on the meaning as the way it was written. At the end of the period, certainly by 1500, that had all gone. And English was, as it is today, a highly analytical one, where inflection plays little part. During this process, 
plural endings became changed, and what we had was a struggle between the northern way of producing a plural, with an S or an ES, and the southern way, by using an N or an R. And it's a battle the Northumbrian dialect won. By 1200, the form dominated the north and the Midlands. By 1400, it had been accepted all over England, including the south. And it just left a few hangovers, such as children, or indeed words such as lamb, which originally had an R for the plural. So there you go. As night follows day, we come to the end of another podcast. Next one is 150, and you might think I should do something special to celebrate. But I'm not going to. I am, in fact, going to return to the land of my fathers, otherwise known as the safe and comfortable political history and the glories of Henry V and his wars against the French, who are in a period of lacking any hap whatsoever. That will be next week, and in the meantime, I have generous donators to thank. To Jim, Chris, Matthew, Cool Breeze Music, David, Ginita, Brad, David, Trevor, Nancy, Benjamin, Mary, Oak, Soren and Dolores. Very grateful thanks for your generosity. And so that's it until next week. Good luck everyone and have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>